Thank you, worship team, for introducing that new song, which I think you'd all agree is theologically sound and rich. Not only is it just not wrong, it's very, very right in so many ways. And just I want to take an opportunity to, to explain how our church goes about choosing a new song. The worship leaders, they meet together every few months, I believe. And, you know, collectively, individually, they're, they're familiar with new songs and music. And, and so they'll bring some suggestions to the committee and they'll consider those. And some get chosen, some don't. And then they'll, once they agree, they send them to the elders and we just sort of look it over for the lyrics specifically for any doctrinal issues, et cetera, and we, we trust them, but it's just an extra, an extra check in the process. Then we introduce the congregation, and we try to have uh, new songs often enough, but not too often, so you feel like you're always learning new songs, so it's a very sort of good process that I think is in place, uh, a careful, a rich process, and uh, uh, we appreciate them for that and all else they do. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 5, very good, very good. Um, <laughs> Tim was listening last week. Finally out of, not finally, but you know what I mean, there was, there was quite a few sermons in chapter 4, but uh, in Acts chapter 5, we'll be reading the first part of that in just a little bit. Our theme, as you can see, is the battle for our hearts. I appreciate Rod's illustration. He, he laid a tone this morning that... So-called science is uh, not always right, and in fact, uh, in, in, his, in this case, his example, clearly wrong, and how do you got, how do you gauge whether that's wrong or right? The Word of God. And I hope you love the Word of God, and I've always appreciated uh, our doctrinal statement, how it describes it. Let me just read that for you. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. So first, it describes what it is, and there, the second part there, that last sentence is the application, what it means, what it means for our life. And I hope that you love the Word of God, I hope that you soak it in every chance you get. But as we do, and especially if you're trying to take in the whole counsel of God, occasionally you're going to come upon some very hard passages, some hard truths. And sometimes they're hard because they're dense and they're just they're difficult to understand. And, and the actual final meeting, meaning uh, may not be clear. You know, there might be enough debate about it where, where we have some options there. But sometimes they're difficult because they're just shocking. They're really sort of hard to process. They're hard to stomach. This one, the first part of Acts chapter 5, is one of those stories. you probably be familiar with it. It tells a true story of a husband and wife who lied seemingly one time and they're struck dead for it. That's shocking. I mean, if you're reading this for the first time, sometimes you're reading it for the 10th or 50th time, it still can be shocking to us. Uh, but we must never back away from the hard truths in Scripture. Uh, and I believe this one has a lot to teach us. So if you want to follow along and, uh, as I read it, Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who, who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. We aim to answer four questions about this story this morning. Um, what happened how did it happen, why did it happen, and then ultimately, what was the result? So what happened here? Well, the facts are, are, are pretty clear, but here's how I summarize the story. If you remember what happened at the very end of Acts chapter 4, Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be like Barnabas. Remember Barnabas? Son of encouragement, very much admired, no doubt. Uh, he wasn't trying to be admired, but he was a son of encouragement. Uh, you, you left him feeling encouraged in the Lord. You left him with gospel encouragement. Uh, and then at the very end it says, he sold a portion of the land, laid it at the apostles' feet, and then it was distributed to the poor. I believe Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be like Barnabas. They wanted the admiration, the recognition, the accolades that went with that. Uh, but once again, just a side note, we see the principle of private property on display we talked about last week, verse 4. Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So there again, this, it's voluntary. There's no coercion in selling this. And it was there, theirs before they sold it. It was still theirs after they sold it. They, they could have given half of it and kept half of it as long as they said that's what they're doing. It was theirs to do whatever they want, wanted with it. But not only did they not end up looking like Barnabas, but what they did has become the antithesis of the Barnabas story. Remember last week we talked about uh, they, they experienced koinos, they practiced koinos, having everything in common, which led to koinonia, uh, but this is anti-koinonia. They lied to the Holy Spirit, they lied to the apostles, they lied to the entire church, they lied to God. This was arrogant disobedience. That's what happened. How did it happen? Uh, Sub-point here under this is the battle against sin is always within the heart. That's our big idea this morning. But far too often we think that our struggle against sin is just a, a behavior problem. And, and sometimes pastors and preachers are part of that problem because we stand up here and say, here's a whole long list of things that, that are wrong and you shouldn't do those and you should avoid those things. Then you give a whole list of things that you ought to be doing that are right. And then we say, okay, go, don't do these things this week, uh, this month, and then, and then do, do all these things and, you know, go, go do that. Um, now, should you preach the Bible that way? Well, obviously, you, you've got to lay out, and, I, and I'll have an example a little bit later, that, that demonstrates that we don't always know right from wrong. 
So those things ought to be established uh, very clearly. Uh, but, but we can't just see our sin, generally speaking, and then just stop doing it. In, in fact, it's way more complicated than that. And if it was that easy, there'd be a lot less sinning going on. Be a lot less, right? Sin begins in the heart, so this is where we need to fight the battle. And to only focus on stopping behavior. Don't do this, stop doing this, is like putting a Band-Aid on cancer. It's just not going to work. It's not getting to the, to the root of the problem. And in the process here, Peter asked Ananias two really important questions. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? And why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? So Peter is saying, Satan filled your heart, but you also contrived this thing yourself within your heart. So which one is true? Was it Satan's fault or is it Ananias' fault? Yes, exactly right. You know this. It's obvious. Uh, these two are intertwined, but, but I want to address them separately. I'm going to take the second question first, and that is the, the contriving within his heart. And obviously his wife joined him in this deception, but Peter is addressing Ananias first. This story, as I, I dug into it, just I, I kept thinking back to the story of Achan in Joshua 7. So let, let me refresh your memory and set up that story. The Israelites had just defeated the mighty city of Jericho. And how did they do that? Right? Marched around it seven times, blew trumpets the last time, and the massive, powerful, frightening city just crumbled down to nothing. And what did God want to teach them in that moment? I did this, God says. You had no part. You, you obeyed me. That's all you did. I did everything. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they... Uh, that was abundantly clear to, to everyone there. But right after this amazing victory, Joshua sent a, a small group of men as spies to an adjacent city to check that out, uh, just as they did with, with Jericho. And the spies came back and said, Jericho, scary. This city, not scary at all. Just let's send a couple thousand men. We'll take care of it. No problem. We'll move on. Well, uh, they sent a couple thousand men. They were defeated soundly. Many of them were killed. The rest of them ran away from the battle. And they come back and say, what happened? Jericho, you did this amazing miracle. But then we got, you know, beaten up really badly. What happened? Well, they went through a process of discovery because they knew there was sin in the camp of the Israelites. And, and everything, the lot finally fell on a man named Achan. And it was discovered that he had taken devoted things, which he should not have taken, from the battle of Jericho. So the walls fall down. There's all these sort of treasures lying around. And, um, and he took some. This is his response. And Achan answered Joshua. Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So there are four things that Achan did here. It was a process. It was an order of events. I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. And in those four things, when did Achan actually start to sin? Well, wow, there's so many answers there. That was really good. I don't usually get answered. Uh, I don't know what you all said, but thank you. Um, 
the first, the first step I would call is the step of temptation. And again, he couldn't help seeing these things. They're just lying there. Gold and silver and very expensive clothes. They're just they're strewn about. So he could not avoid the temptation. As Martin Luther has famously said, you cannot prevent the birds from flying in the air over your head, but you can certainly prevent them from building a nest in your hair. So that's the, that's the, 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 the stopping of temptation. So our first response to temptation is key, it's important, but Achan took it a step further and he coveted, and this is what I would call the heart battle, right? That's where coveting takes place. He wanted all of those earthly treasures because he, rather he took all those earthly treasures because he wanted them first. He saw them, he covered them. I've got to have those things. Now he knew they're forbidden. There's, there's no debate in that text whatsoever about whether it was right or wrong. But once they had captured his heart, the rest of the process, the, the taking and the hiding was basically inevitable. And I would argue that uh, all, uh, let, let me fill in the, the, the gaps here. The, the taking then for Achan is the actual behavior, and then the hiding is a process of experiencing shame, and therefore you want to hide your shame, you want to hide what you've done because the consequences might be worse than what you've already experienced. And I believe you could take every sin you've ever battled with, or even a sin you're battling with now, and, and they all follow these same four processes. That we, we have a temptation, then we have a battle within our hearts, then we actually commit the behavior, then we go into some form of shame and hiding. And uh, again, once the sinful act was done, from Aiken's perspective, hiding was absolutely necessary. So in this story in Acts 5, many think that Ananias and Sapphira were punished simply because they told one lie, which is a gross oversimplification of the story. I don't believe that's accurate at all. Achan had to lie about what he took, and in the same way, Ananias and Sapphira had to lie about what they did. And I've said many times before that, that no one lies just for the sake of lying. You know, unless you've got some, like, far outlier, sort of somebody with a mental illness, like psychopath, you know. Uh, aside from that, all of us lie because we're hiding something. We're, uh, we have shame because of something we've done. Um, so there's something that we're, we're trying to avoid, so we go into hiding. Now, obviously, uh, Lying is wrong, and obviously stealing is wrong, but in order to defeat any of those, all believers need to understand that the battle is won or lost in the heart. Here's my take on what happened with Ananias and Sapphira, and I can't absolutely prove this, it's sort of conjecture, but I I think it matches the text. I think they had a need for recognition and praise. As I said before, they wanted to be like Barnabas. Uh, There was a wonderful church that was just booming, right? Thousands of conversions. And the descriptions that you see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 is this glorious church that any of us would have been blessed and pleased to to have been a part of. Wonderful, wonderful church. And, and everyone now, now they're like, hey, let's, let's support the poor. Let's, let's do this. And, and they, they held things in common. And, and it was just absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Um, and they wanted their growing Christian, Christian community to know, listen, we're, we're just like Barnabas. You can look to us as you see Barnabas. But even if they had not kept 
part of the money for themselves, right? Even if they hadn't lied about that, that still could have been true. They still could have been looking for recognition because it's so, so easy to do the right thing for the wrong motives. We've all done it many, many times. But they likely had, I believe they also had greed and maybe pleasure as idols of the hearts as well because they didn't just want praise of men, but they wanted Profit, financial profit, sell some and, and keep the rest. And maybe there was some fear or lack of security mixed in there. Maybe they, you know, in this context, in, in first century, if you weren't fairly well off, and obviously they, they're well enough to have property they could sell in the first place, but if you weren't fairly well off, you were essentially subsistence living. So if they sold that property and gave all of it away, maybe they're thinking, well, we don't have enough to live on now. So maybe there's some fear that creeped in. Maybe there's just greed that creeped in. Maybe it's a combination of greed and fear. It's an idol of the heart, all of these things. Recognition, uh, respect, greed, fear. They're idols of the heart. They're, they're things that we covet, things that we want. If you want praise and recognition, and if you have fear and greed, all of those exist in the heart long before, sometimes years before we actually act on them. Now, of course, we all have idols of the heart, and it's far better not to act on them. For, for example, it's, it's wrong to lust, but it's far worse to take that lust and turn it into adultery. The consequences are, are far, far greater. Both are wrong, but one has greater consequences. So the challenge for the believer is to deal with the heart issues before they become behavior issues. Which is why Peter asked this question. Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? That's where it started. He, he contrived this long before he actually did it. It may have been like early on in the process. Oh, hey, some of us are selling a property, giving it to the poor. It may have taken root that early. Temptation led to coveting, which led to stealing, which led to lying. And if you and I want to stop that massive freight train, we've got to stop it at the heart level, at the level of coveting. And some of you might think, well, why don't, why don't we stop it right at the very beginning of temptation? Why don't we just eliminate all temptation, and then we'll ha never have any coveting? Well, how's that working for you? Have you been able to eliminate all temptation in your life? It's not possible. Again, Aiken is just like... Doing his duty. He, he's there, you know, after the walls had fallen, and he could not help but see those things. Yes, of course, do all you can to avoid temptation. You know, put, you know, whatever that may be, stay as far away from sin as you possibly can. No question about that. But we'll never finally win the battle against sin just by removing temptation. So you remove temptation, and you especially do the battle at the heart level. And this is even more challenging when you consider the fact that Satan is also aiming at our heart, which is, uh, leads to Peter's second question. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? I found this uh, a great quote from Charles Spurgeon that describes the heart level. Consider how precious a soul must be when both God and the devil are after it. And that's, that's important to understand. Both God and the devil are after our hearts. This is also where we see the devastating impact of the trifecta of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is constantly laying out temptations for us. And some of it, you know, intentionally, someone's trying to tempt you, or sometimes it's just there by, by, by living life. 
And then our hearts, our flesh, want those temptations we see. And then the devil takes them and, and, and drives them into heart. Sort of, sort of like brick by brick, builds a little house around that coveting and says, I think you should live here. This is where you should dwell. And understand, coveting is, is also a spectrum, right? So, for example, you, ladies might show up on a sunny morning and, and, and see another woman, and uh, she's got this beautiful new sweater on. And, 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 the, and the gal says, wow, that's a really pretty sweater. You, you know, as you're being polite. Then you get in the car on the way home, and you get on Amazon, you order it right away, because you've got to have that sweater. <laughs> Guys, you know better. You go on Facebook, and, and you see somebody just got a prize buck. So now you get jealousy uh, rising up, but you also, you zoom in on the picture, and you say, look at that bow. That's why he got the buck. I've got to have that bow, right? I mean, this, this, this is the way it works. I would put, in general, is, is it wrong to get a new sweater? Is it wrong to get a new bow? Well, it, it depends, right? Maybe you don't have the money, whatever. Maybe all that greed is in your heart, or maybe it's perfectly fine, acceptable. It's what you should do. So, so that if that is sin, if that is coveting, it's at the sort of the, the, this end of the spectrum. Then we get all the way over here, here things that you know, get into addictions and, and things you just you have no control, and they're always a sinful sort of coveting. You must have those things. You cannot exist without them. That, that's in an ice and sapphire. They could not exist. They must have the recognition. So they did it. But the battle for the heart begins with understanding why your heart wants those things. Why did Ananias have, if I'm accurate in describing these, idols of recognition and fear and greed in their hearts? I believe, fundamentally, they do not believe that their worth and security came from the Lord. We, we sang about that. We're, we're going to finish with that chorus. We must have, and this is a God-instilled need in us, to be accepted, to be significant. We, we must have those things. And if we don't find them in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will seek them other places. We must have them, do you see? The coveting is there inherently. If they cannot rest in God, then their recognition and worth must come from others. Their hearts were not satisfied until they believed that they are respected and recognized by others around them. I found a quote by St. Augustine, some of you uh, will be familiar too. He says, you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That's what he's talking about. Our hearts are always wanting, fundamentally, God has created us, our hearts to want the greatest treasure, but we're constantly settling for a false treasure or a lesser treasure. And this raises another challenge in our battle against sin. That good things are often as tempting as bad things. Oh, if that weren't the case. Uh, we all know bad things that can tempt us. And like Achan and Ananias and Sapphira, we usually know that they're wrong, but not always. I found a very sobering statistic this week that I wanted to share with you. This is uh, from George Barna, Barnapole, and I, I tend to put a lot of weight on Barnapoles because his, his research and the way he does them is very thorough. And uh, this is what he found, that this is now statistics from teens and young adults. And I'm pretty sure it's across the board. It's not just necessarily Christians. But teens and young adults, probably early to mid-20s, 
They believe, 56% of them believe, that not recycling is immoral. Okay? So you can make of that whatever you want. 56% not recycling is immoral. But the real problem is that 32% of them think that viewing pornographic images is not. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm saying that wrong. Not recycling is immoral. 32% saying viewing pornographic images is immoral. Therefore, two-thirds of them saying not a problem at all. That morality, that has nothing to do with morality. So we ought not to assume that everyone clearly knows right from wrong. And until that statistic gets to 100%, you still need blogs and podcasts and, and preachers and teachers who, who make it very clear to us, this is clearly wrong, stay away from this sin, right? We don't want to stop there, but we still need that to be done. Obviously, obviously. But their uh, story, now I believe clearly Ananias and Sapphira knew what they were doing was wrong. But the story reminds us that we can be just as easily tempted by good things. Because what did they do? They gave money to the poor. <laughs> they, I mean, when's the last time you sold a viable anything and gave all of it to, to the poor? I've never done that. That's, that's really amazing what they did. It was a great, great, good deed. But this is, becomes a common sin of believers who want to do good. We, we've probably seen uh, Christians, and this is a temptation in a church Christian environment, people work their fingers to the bone because their identity is in what they're doing, right? It looks like they're doing all good things, and they are doing good things, but they're doing good things to be, to be recognized, to have their, their fulfillment, their sense of, of security and, and acceptance in those things. Anything that is good and right can become an idol. And, and in fact, the gooder those things are, the more uh, righteous they seem to be, the more likely they're to be an idol, and the more likely to be an idol that we cannot see. Such as, I mean, just take... Take any, any good deed you can, you can imagine, but, but, but family is, is a very, very uh, common idol uh, among us. We say, it's family. It's my kids. It's my grandkids. Of course I, I want to, to you know, d- do all this for them, whatever. Uh, but we, we often can't see it. Another way of stating this is that temptations happen in the ordinary parts of life. Uh, temptation sounds dirty and gross doesn't it just the word temptation obviously there's there's some illicit evil thing that's just drawing you wants you to come and do that uh but but again uh there are evil things that tempt us but there are so so many good things and i think for the christian the probably the majority of things that tempt us are probably quote-unquote good things but when our hearts are restless, right, when, when we've got to fill the void there, we will not rest until it's filled. And it's just ordinary parts of life. You, you don't have to go, another way of saying this is, you don't have to go looking for a temptation. It's just there in the world. And again, even all of the good things, especially the good things. I want to take um, sort of a break from this story and just, make sure we're seeing something in this text before we move on, uh, that the Holy Spirit is God. And this is part of our battle against sin, that we rely on the Holy Spirit. But there's something very explicit here I want us to see. 
Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then the next verse he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Now, obviously, he has lied to man as well, but he also lied to God. And if he lied to the Holy Spirit uh, and he lied to God, therefore, the Holy Spirit is God. And this is generally understood to be one of the clearest examples of the deity of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And uh, I don't want to belabor that point, but I, I want us to make sure that we saw that as well. Third question, major question, is why did this happen? So, so, so we get that it was bad, it was, we, we, we understand that, but why did they have to be killed for it? Why such a, a drastic result? I mean, yes, they lied, yes, they had sin in their hearts, but, but we lie, we have sin in our hearts. Why are we spared all the time, but they were instantly killed for it? What sort of judgment was this? Well, again, I, I go back. I'm so helped, I believe, by the Aiken story for perspective. Think what was happening there. This was the beginning of entering the promised land. Promises were made to Abraham about 2000 B.C. Uh, the Joshua story is happening, happening roughly 1350 B.C. So over 600 uh, years later, they are uh, finally going to enter the promised land after the Lord had rescued them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt and then 40 years of wandering the wilderness because they, they didn't believe the first time when they entered the promised land. And now it's going to happen and God does this miracle of the walls of Jericho just tumbling down. Then you have Achan's sin. Achan's sin was a gross violation of God's commands. It had an impact on the entire community, but it happened, the, the, the extre extreme uh, discipline that happened to Achan and his family happened because of this moment in history. It was an absolute key moment in biblical salvation history, and God was demonstrating to the Israelites that he is a holy God, because they forgot it all the time, and he expects his followers to be likewise holy. And in a very similar way, this story occurred at an absolute key moment in church history. It's the beginning of the early church. It's the beginning of how the new covenant is going to work its way out throughout the world. And, and we read chapter 4, we read chapter 2, and they already had established wonderful habits of teaching and fellowship and prayer and now they're they're doing this this amazing thing of sacrificing the worldly treasure so that so that other poor people can can live and exist now we have ananias and sapphira and the, their behavior was a a blasphemous distortion of all of those good descriptions of this young church we're striving to become and do not forget the proximity of jesus death and resurrection and ascension months before i mean it's still it's still ringing in the air it's all they can talk about so when they did this it's like a slap in the face of jesus it's a slap in the face of the holy spirit it's a slap in the face to to the whole church and all that they were doing so God chose to make a one-time example of this couple at a key moment in church history to demonstrate to them that he is a holy God and he expects his followers to be likewise holy. Same purpose, same very similar result. And what was that result? What ultimately happened? Well, the result of the severe action was exactly what God had intended. Uh, we see this twice. 
And great fear came upon all who heard it. That was Ananias. Ananias. And then uh, a couple of verses later, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That's Sapphira. So, what is the moral of the story? What's the end result? God wants us to be afraid of him. Is that, is that the moral of the story? God wants us to walk around and waiting at any moment for the hammer to fall. Maybe, maybe he's going to kill us tomorrow because I lied yesterday. Well, it depends. It depends on what we mean by the fear of the Lord. I mean, the answer is, is yes. He, he does want us to fear him. They were fearing him, and it continued on in the early church. Uh, now, this becomes months, and then finally, many, many years later, Acts, Acts 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Put those two together. It's beautiful. The fear of the Lord, but simultaneously the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's, that, that's, a, that's a, a reverent fear of God's holiness. And many times, many different, a couple different words for fear. Sometimes it's literally reverence and awe. Sometimes it's the, the actual word fear. But that's our idea that God is holy. We are not. We must walk in holiness, but they're not, they're not afraid in the sense of, of waiting for judgment and wrath to fall. That's not that kind of fear. And then Acts 19, years later, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So there again, similar idea. They, they have simultaneously a fear of the Lord, but a, an absolute all-out uh, worship of jesus so we need to understand that the fear of the lord is not a a fear of of judgment he, he is not gonna well i'm not saying he's not you know he's not uh, i mean he's gonna do what he's gonna do uh but the the likelihood of, of us being killed tomorrow um is, is very very low but he he does because of his folly discipline that's what we're talking about here this is a hebrews 12 sort of sort of a matter but in extreme sense that God disciplines those he loves and those he treats as sons and daughters. He must because he, he, he sees in our hearts and he says, don't hold on to that. That's, that's, a, that's a pretender. That's a false treasure. That's going to lead you nowhere but down. Don't fill your heart with that. Fill your heart with, with a fear of me, with a, with a love of me. Last passage to to give us some more context. 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Ooh, judgment. Scary word. So that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So this is a judgment seat of Christ is a judgment not of, of wrath, but of rewards. And at the end of this, you either get literally no rewards some rewards or a lot of rewards, somewhere in between. So this is, this is, there's no wrath in this whatsoever, but it's a final judgment of rewards. And until that day, this folly discipline happens to us all of the time. We may not exactly know each time. It's like, oh, I, I had the flu last week really bad. Was, was that God's discipline? Maybe, maybe not. I got a flat tire. I was stranded for two hours. Was that God's discipline? Maybe, maybe not. It's what you do with it. It's like, Lord, what do you want me to learn while I'm lying in bed? What do you want me to learn while I'm, I'm on the side of the road here, very, very cold? That's the process. 
One final question. Did God love Ananias and Sapphira just as much as he loved Peter who was asking these hard questions? I believe so. I, I believe, I can't absolutely prove this, uh, but I believe they were believers. They were born-again believers. Now, you can make a case that they weren't, but, but I, I'm convinced of it. You, you look at the context, and the church was this, and the church was this, and they're growing and full, full of grace, and Ananias and Sapphira were part of it. Could they have been false believers? Again, yes, but I'm convinced these were believers. So they died, and just like the thief on the cross Instantly in the presence of Jesus. They were loved even in the midst of their sin. You and I are loved even, even in the midst of our sin. And it's that very knowledge that can change our hearts. Because we say, it's too great of a truth (laughs) that your grace would be so evident while I sin. Lord, forgive me. I don't want to do that again. I want my heart to be filled with you and not these false treasures. Let's ask the Lord for help. Father, I'm I'm always struck with how many good things you give us in this life. So many things and so many wonderful things that that we want them, we want the gifts, and instead of the giver, we lose sight of that. Father, thank you for the fact that you, you love us so much. You, you will cause us pain at some level to get our attention, to, to help us see the false treasures in our heart to help us see how amazing and glorious you are and we want those things instead of these worthless idols, no better than than the idols made with silver and wood and carved and molded, worthless, worse than worthless, counterfeit that don't make room for you. By your spirit, Lord, convict us encourage us, take away our shame as we rest in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.